Greetings and welcome or welcome back to the Yearbooking Report podcast. Great to have you. For those, uh, maybe this is your first go around. My name is Scott Giese. I'm a 20-year representative of Jostin's Yearbooks. I am a lifelong journalist, a former broadcaster going all the way back really to my high school days. And I do all this stuff because I enjoy storytelling. I also like working with students and teaching and stuff like that. So we got a pretty good segment, I think, on tap for you here for the month of May as the school year is concluding. Now, for some folks, you may be listening to this and your school year is already over. If so, congratulations, you made it to the end. Yay. Unfortunately, for some other folks, they've got to go, maybe in some cases, rather well into June. Uh, but we're going to wrap up the school year with the topic of scholastic journalism. Now, of course, a yearbook is a work of scholastic journalism. But in this episode, we're going to talk about that, but we're going to go further. We're going to talk about newspaper and some other areas, the whole realm of student scholastic journalism. And we were very fortunate recently to catch up with our friend Sarah Nichols. Now, Sarah's at least a couple of things. For one thing, she is an outstanding yearbook advisor, fabulous, from Whitney High School in Rockland, California. Now, Sarah's in California. I'm in Pennsylvania, but I have seen her book, and it is just unbelievable. Wow, just off the charts, terrific book, award-winning probably every year. But along with that, Sarah is also the president of the Journalism Education Association, or JEA. Now, in my case, I'm very honored to be a certified journalism educator, what we call a CJE from the JEA. There are some folks out there who are MJEs. They are master journalism educators. I kind of envy those folks. They are really, really good. And the idea of scholastic journalism has always been around there, but it's been my observation that for the great majority of schools out there, scholastic journalism is almost an afterthought. It's, well, you know, we sort of do a newspaper. Well, we kind of put together a yearbook. You know, maybe we have a broadcast team, but frankly, maybe all they do are the daily announcements. You know, the chess club is meeting today at 3 o'clock after school. You know, that sort of stuff. That's not really scholastic journalism. But perhaps today, more than ever, the idea of good quality scholastic journalism is more important now maybe than ever in history. We really, really need it. Kids really, really need to learn it. There's the idea of media literacy and so on. How do we get there? And so we were very fortunate to catch up with Sarah recently, who knows more. Well, she's the president. She knows plenty. She knows more than just about anybody else. And we had some great questions for her. So in this uh, first segment, we're going to introduce her. Now, we'll mention one thing. She's in California. I'm in Pennsylvania. This was an online interview, so at times maybe the sound or the audio might be sound a little funny, be a little funky, but just bear with us. We go along as we start to tackle this idea on the importance of scholastic journalism. Well, first off, Sarah, I appreciate you taking the time out of your schedule to talk to us today. We're recording this in early May. Now, you're in California, I'm in Pennsylvania, but I know the school year's ending. There's got to be testing. There's got to be stress. you got to be pulling your hair out, although your hair looks better than mine. Okay? So I, I really appreciate you taking some time to, uh, to free up from your schedule and, and talk to us today. Now, the main topic of our conversation is going to be just scholastic journalism. Not your book in particular, but scholastic journalism in general. So, Sarah, just to begin, 
for folks that maybe don't know who you are, maybe do some kind of a, a, like a background of yourself. Where do you teach? How long have you been teaching? What do you teach? And so on. Sure. Uh, so yearbook has been a part of my life for almost 30 years now. I teach in a climate in Northern California near Sacramento. Our area is called Rockland, and my school is Whitney High School. It's one of two uh, high schools in the district. And our school is about 14 years old, and so I advise and teach full student media all day long. I teach uh, a production course called Whitney High Student Media, which produces the yearbook, news website, news magazine, and social media. Then I also teach three sections of beginning media called Introduction to Publication Design and Multimedia. And then I teach two sections of graphic communications. But really, I've been doing this uh, all along. I've taught photojournalism, journalism one through four, um, for 20 years. This is my 20th year. And before that, I was doing it as a high school student. So that's where I got my start in Ohio. I was on the yearbook staff, Elkonian, at Centerville High School. And I just fell in love with yearbook and what journalism could do for a school and for the students who produce it and really what it took to work together in that kind of culture, and I thought that was a pretty powerful thing. So I went to Indiana University and got a journalism degree uh, specifically so I could be a high school journalism teacher and then have had the opportunity to do that at three schools. I did that in Indiana for five years and then um, one year uh, teaching at a school here in California while my school was being built, and then I had the fortune of starting this program from scratch. I was hired to start the journalism program at the school where I teach and had the remarkable experience of building it from the ground up, even with students um, encouraging them on ways to go about choosing the name of our publications and um, our mission statement and all of those things. So it's been a really fun journey from the very beginning. So it sounds like in your career, as far as journalism is concerned, you've done just about or you've taught just about everything? I mean, all the different facets and fields? Yes, um, and I'm, you know, it's exactly what I set out to do from the beginning, but I'm fortunate that I have been able to do that um, from the print stage all the way to the digital and multimedia stage where we are now. So newspaper, news magazine, yearbook, um, you know, we started our school website in the 2009 to 2010 year. When I first started teaching, that didn't exist. You know, we've gone from film to digital, and we've gone from no color pages in our publication to full color publication. So yeah, I've been able to see a little bit of all of it. Now you and I have crossed paths on social media. Um, by the way, did you bring did you bring the cake? <laughs> we have a lot of cake in our program. Cake days are good. <laughs> yeah, I can't remember. A few weeks ago, it was something about cake, and I'm thinking, yep. Scott, what are you doing? You're an idiot. Um, anyway. And we're both apparently Big Ten people. I think you mentioned Indiana. And, of course, I've got Penn State about a five-minute drive from where I'm sitting right now. So we won't get into Big Ten stuff. We'll kind of leave that alone. Now, I have seen your yearbook from afar. And, of course, it is an outstanding yearbook that you do. Just fabulous. Um, tell us something about your yearbook. Either your yearbook, your yearbook effort. Um, you know, what, what do you folks do with that? Well, it's 100% student-driven, it's student-produced, so it's really their uh, challenge of the year, right? It's like a, a blank slate or a, a problem that they get to solve. So they start at the beginning and decide, you know, how do we want to tell the stories of the year? What does that look like? How are we going to get there? Um, from the visual to the verbal and all of the storytelling strategies, it's a uh, student's path to, to determine. And I get to teach them and train them and coach them along the way. I get to ask a lot of questions. I get to um, give feedback and, and coach and encourage them, but I love that they figure it out. And 
some years that's quickly and some years that's super slowly, but that's where the real learning magic comes in. And, you know, when they see it and hold it in their hands for the first time, when they are, you know, opening the binding and hearing the crack of the spine, you know, those pages turning, um, some students even like sniff the pages and those moments are among um, the, my favorite in life, not just in the school year, not just like teaching moments, but those are some of my favorite moments ever to watch students um, just like overcome with pride for something that they did. So um, that's really at the core of our program. It's about relationships and the people and the process and ultimately uh, very little about the product. It's, you know, like more what we gain from each other and what we give to others through that experience. That's what we're all about. Sarah, I wish I could bottle what you just said and give it to every single yearbook advisor I work with. I've been a yearbook rep for 20 years. Um, and I've worked, I've been fortunate to work with many schools and many people. And I'll, I'll say this out loud, in too many instances, the yearbook advisor pretty much is pulling all the strings and the kids are almost, if you will, along for the ride. That's not what you just described. You just described something 180 degrees different. Now, for somebody who's listening, thinking, boy, that sounds great. How do you get there? Is there some secret formula? How do you do that? You know, I love that question because it really, uh, it has to come from the culture that you build as an advisor of trust and empowerment for anyone who hears this, who knows me personally, I am such a control freak. I am so type A um, that it's not necessarily my nature to, to step back and, and watch things play out, but that's absolutely the best way to advise. And so, um, it's, it's about knowing that students ultimately will succeed and having that faith in them and then helping them to build that faith in themselves, which means that sometimes it's going to be slow. Um, it's not going to be on the timeline that you set, right? Like deadlines, you, I mean, you have to meet deadlines, but the work isn't going to fall into play on Thursday at 8 because that's when you said they needed to have their perfect idea, right? It's, it's a lot of flexibility in how you arrive at the destination. And for um, most teachers, we aren't trained that way. You know, like your report card is due on this day and you're, you have a meeting at this time. And we're very much scripted as educators and like forced into these patterns and timelines and calendars that don't necessarily match up with students learning because every student is learning at a different time. So you, to go back to your question of like, how do you do that? Um, you trust your students and you train them and then you focus on the process and you teach them really like the critical thinking skills and the problem solving and you and you build in them the heart to care about the program um, so you're not so much focused on like oh this is the perfect theme or this is the perfect layout you're focused on your editors training them of like how do they figure out the questions that they need to answer with their staffs and in what order you know it's very much about editor training very much about planning and front-loading and crafting a vision for the year uh, to get to that level of um, then the students can find their way. Now, somebody who's listening, I know what they're thinking right now. Now, Sarah, be honest, in the 20 years that you've done this, have you ever been burned? It just, the kids, it didn't work out. The kids didn't do what they needed to do. Struggles all over the place. Have you ever come up short somehow? Well, there are always struggles. Don't get me wrong. Um, you know, 
you see plaques on the wall or you hear a pacemaker or you hear this or that, that doesn't mean any part of it was easy. Uh, it's not easy. Um, I actually think that's why it's so special and so beneficial because learning should be an investment and students need to have a stake in it and know that that challenge is going to lead to something. So um, I wouldn't want to pretend that it is not difficult. Even my best student years, you know, sometimes you have, have like the rock star lineup, right? Like really, really high achieving, amazing kids where it just falls into place, you know, kind of magically. Even those years have challenges. It's that the challenges are unique to the students. So um, my job as a teacher is always to be reflecting, right? Like what's working? What's not working? What should we keep doing the same? You know, what should we change? What could we improve? And so... Um, if I find that mid-year something isn't working that previously worked for us, it's my job to change it, right? Like I'm steering the ship. So I, I wouldn't really use the phrase like getting burned. I think that every learning experience is so different. But there are some years where it started strong and finished like a little weaker and then the reverse. You know, some years, you know, it's just, it's it's unpredictable. And I think for some teachers that's what they like about it so much is, you know, I, I see with some of my colleagues and they come in and they teach five sections of biology. And in every class they're doing the exact same thing, same chapter outline, they give the same test, they get the same answers. I can't imagine doing that um, because every day for us is different. And some days something's just going to click for kids or a student's going to have an amazing idea and they're going to come in and implement it with their staff two days later. And that's the beauty of, like, yes, sometimes can be really challenging, but coming out on the other so much more meaningful than a student in a core class taking a test and getting an 82%. Like there's not a lot of joy. There's not a, as many aha moments, not to discredit, you know, those other subjects and other teaching methods, but ours is just so authentic that even in the moments that might be stressful on an advisor looking at a calendar or a clock, um, the rewards are just so great when you see the students get it. Okay, burn might have been a little harsh. <laughs> But I'm just, I'm thinking about those advisors who would just be scared to death of ceding all the decision-making to the kids, that they're afraid that, oh, they're going to go do something, or they're not going to come through, or it's just going to fall apart. I have to make all the decisions. I mean, if you were talking to somebody like that, like right now, what in a minute or so, what would you tell them? So a couple things. Number one, that's super reassuring and kind of like empowering once you figure this out. Your student body only knows the yearbook that you give them, right? They only know the book that they're handing, holding in their hands in the end of the year. They don't know the spread that you deleted. They don't know the photo shoot where every photo was blurry and the pictures didn't make it into the book. They didn't know the story that you were going to write that didn't get written. They only know what got done and published and handed to them. So there's a little bit of flexibility that, you know, if something goes wrong, okay, like find something new, figure out a different approach, change the ladder, put a different spread in, um, emphasize this event instead of that event. We get really bogged down by something that didn't go the way we wanted, but your readers will never ever know that those things happened. And that kind of um, gives you like, so to speak, a cushion. Um, so that's, that's one part. The other part to the advisor hearing this and thinking like, okay, you know, how, how realistic is this? Um, I think we will always find students who care. It might not be the students who started out at the beginning, right? Like maybe you had kids who were just gung-ho, they were amazing, and then by 
like mid-year they're starting to trickle off because they're excited about college or they get senioritis or something in family or home life popped up, you can find someone else. It's never the advisor's job to step in and to finish it or to decide it or to control it. Your job as the advisor is to be looking for like which group of kids are you going to empower and boost and encourage to take the next steps. And I think that's where sometimes advisors fall short is that they're counting on like one or two students or they're counting on a very select group of editors when you need to cast a wider net and have more kids involved in the decision making. You know, give different kids different jobs, let them have a stake in what they're going to design or run or like manage on the staff um, so that there's less burnout and more kids are decision makers and every kid is engaged in some way. Um, and then our job in the winter months is to start boosting up the younger kids so that as the older kids are moving toward graduation and all of their senior activities and their AP tests and sort of like the next thing on the high school timeline, we're really focused on sophomores and juniors stepping into roles and like training them and like building that transition time because it really helps um, sort of that circle of life when, when some kids are done, other kids are filling their spots and then you don't have any disconnect. Um, that's the advisor's job, right? Our advising job is like that um, forecasting what, you know, like predicting that those things are going to happen. Th those are cycles, right? Like that's seasonal. And so we know that that's going to happen. So it's really important um, for us to be um, looking ahead. You know, I always tell my editors, their job is to be, there's kind of like the staff's job is today. Um, the editor's job is like tomorrow, but my job is like next week, right? So we're always kind of planning for the thing that's yet to come. And I'm planning to train the editors so that they're planning to be ready for their staff and the staff just shows up to class each day. So those would be that's my some, simple suggestions. That's some great advice. Thank you. We'll get back to more of our interview with Sarah Nichols, the president of the Journalism Education Association, coming up in just a bit. Now, for advisors out there, Jostens has not one, but two ways now to earn some extra graduate credit for yourself. And either if you're a young teacher or maybe any teacher, certainly the idea of getting some extra grad credit hours, that's something you really want to do. I'm assuming, I think in some places, maybe you start to earn more money if you have more of those grad credit hours. And through Jostens, we now have two opportunities for teachers or advisors to earn this uh, coveted stuff. We're going to start with our annual event we have every July. It's called Jostens Advisor University. It is the best advisor-only workshop in the country, in the business. One good thing about JAU is it's available to anyone. It doesn't matter what yearbook company you work with. You are invited to attend and learn from some of the top instructors in the country, meet and learn from some of the top yearbook advisors in the country, not necessarily just all Jostens people. We always get a good cross-section of people. And the idea is how can we help advisors do a better job, make a better yearbook, have a better effort uh, along the way and teach their kids very important skills that they are absolutely going to use later in life. If they're going to college, if they're going to the work world, if they're going to even the military, doesn't matter. Skills that those kids are going to learn, they learn as part of a great yearbooking effort. 
Now this year, JAU is July 16 through 19 in beautiful Orlando, Florida. I have been to this event. It is everything it's built. It is a fabulous event. And again, you've got some rookie advisors and they get together with some 20-year advisors and it is just a tremendous learning experience. Either if you're a rookie advisor or if you're an advisor who just, you want to do a better job, you want a better effort, or maybe you just want to really, you know, kind of commingle with top yearbook advisors from all across America, JAU is the event for you. And as part of JAU, you have a chance to earn some graduate credit hours for yourself. Now, if you like more information, go to the website, jostens.com slash JAU. All the information is there. All the costs are there. All the details are there. The grad credit hours are talked about there. Check it out. If you can make it, this is an event not to be missed. So again, jostens.com slash JAU. Hope to see you down there in Orlando in mid-July. Now, we have another way to earn grad credit hours, and we'll tell you about that in just a bit. First off, let's go back to our interview with Sarah Nichols, the president of the Journalism Education Association. And in this next segment, if you're not familiar, we're going to learn more about JEA and what they can do for you. Now, you're also the president of the Journalism Education Association. Now, for folks who have, they're really not familiar, maybe they've heard of JEA and that's about it. Tell us something about this organization. So the Journalism Education Association is more than 3,000 people who care about teaching and advising scholastic media. So our organization is dedicated toward the teachers. We're the ones in the classrooms, you know, working with students at the scholastic level, so high school and middle school or junior high. And everything our organization does is aimed at helping teachers be better at teaching journalism to students. So we have curriculum, we have training, we have mentoring, we have certification, we have a rewards program through contests and um, ways that teachers can be honored or recognized in the profession. And everything we do is designed to just give them that support and boost, um, not just to survive as a journalism teacher or a media advisor, but to thrive and to really um, you know, have a successful experience. I've told many advisors over the years, if you really are into journalism, you need to be a JEA member. And for a teacher, I forget the amount. Is it, It's only like $50 or $60 a year, I think. Yes, it's $60. It's an annual membership, and that provides uh, access to the curriculum online, which is a dynamic, you know, always being added or changed um, developmental, you know, curriculum across uh, 10 different areas of journalism. It includes all of our magazines, all of our programming, and access to um, discounts for things like our bookstore and our contests, and then eligibility for all of our rewards and recognition, as well as our certification program. And you also have not one, but two conventions every year, one in the spring, one in the fall. Now, as we're recording this in early May, the one in the spring was just a couple of weeks ago uh, over in Anaheim, California. And tell us about that. What, what happens at a convention? So the national conventions are pretty much like a family reunion for everyone in the scholastic journalism world where you, you have your cousins and your second cousins and, you know, these people you only see a few times a year and yet you will run across a ballroom to run up and give someone a hug and to celebrate, you know, how are you doing? Oh, it's so good to see you. Um, from, from the community aspect or the camaraderie and collegiality, it's absolutely incredible for teachers to be with their people, right, to reunite with or connect with or meet 
people who do exactly what they do, since at school you're often kind of like isolated or on an island, maybe no one else teaches or advises the same thing that you do. Um, from a student standpoint, it's incredibly exciting and energizing to meet other students doing what you do and to learn like, wow, this is so big. You know, there's these 5,000 other kids making a yearbook or a magazine at, at, at their school and you can get ideas, you know, well, how do you do this? Or how do you, what do you guys do about, you know, it's a wonderful networking and idea sharing um, experience from that standpoint. But really, it's all about learning. It's all about professional development from the teacher and student perspective. It is a, it's a conference, right? You're a delegate at a national convention where you're going to learn. And so you're in breakout sessions, you're hearing from professionals, you're meeting with um, industry pros and things like uh, Break With a Pro where you could you know, learn about career shadowing or what it would like, be like to pursue a certain path in the industry. You're hearing keynote speakers from Pulitzer Prize winning journalists. You're engaging in on-site competitions. You're attending receptions and award ceremonies where you're reading or hearing these things about people who are just legendary teachers and advisors in scholastic journalism, and it's very inspiring. Um, you could show up there and be a little tired or stressed out or maybe kind of disillusioned about how things are going, and you just leave so energized and ready. You're equipped with new ideas and skills, and it just kind of fills your bucket in a way that no other professional development does. It is such a highlight for everyone involved. Yeah, I'm always impressed when I see... Uh usually via the JEA email list, I see the list of speakers and I'm think I'm always thinking, wow, where are they getting these people? I mean, holy mackerel, there's some really, it seems like every one of these, if it's in California or Seattle or Chicago, you have some heavy hitters. I'm going to guess maybe these people are eager to come and meet high school students and talk and instruct. Yeah, it's wonderful to see the professionals give back to the community and, you know, it really speaks to the relationships that are developed between um, the teachers and the professional journalists in those different cities, you know, to go into a newsroom and have connections at the Los Angeles Times or um, the Washington Post and those professionals really value the connections to the high school level and kind of planting the seeds for the next generation of journalists. They know that these are really... Um, minds that are being, you know, like fresh, impressionable minds and kids really get inspired by it. So it's wonderful. Many of this and say like, this is the best thing I do all year or, you know, I can't wait to come back to your next convention. Um, it's a, a great experience for our students to, to hear firsthand from those professionals. Now for folks like me and folks on the East Coast, the November convention, mid-November is going to be in Washington, D.C. I can only imagine what kind of speakers you're going to get for that one? Um, you mentioned Washington Post. Yeah, they're kind of nearby, um, along with some others. And doggone, I'm going to go this year, Sarah. I'm going to find a way to go. All right, I've got to, I, all these years, first of all, let me throw out that we have met before. A number of years ago, you helped some Jostens people earn what we call CJE status, Certified Journalism Educator. Um, and so you sort of showed us the ropes, went over some basics. We all took the test. I think most of us passed. I don't know, maybe not everybody. Um, so CJE status is something that if you want to be a journalism teacher, it's not hard to do, and it's something you need to earn. And I believe, Sarah, at the conventions, they give tests. People can do that, right? 
That's correct. So uh, a couple months in advance is the deadline for signing up, and a teacher member can register and you know indicate that they want to go for that CJE or MJE certification. That gives you kind of that front end prep time to know, okay, I'm doing it. You know, I need to study or I need to prepare. And then the test takes place at the convention. It's about two and a half hours. It's done all through computer now, but you're in the room with other test takers. You're on a laptop and you log in and it's a timed test with a proctor in the room. But it is a fantastic way to either kind of push yourself to learn the things that you don't know as a journalism educator, or if you're already trained or experienced in those areas, it's a great way to validate that you do know them. Uh, it's such great designation to have the CJE after your name or the MJE for your principal, for your department chair, for the parents and students, you know, for the stakeholders, for everyone involved in your teaching, it just shows I am highly qualified in this area, and it gives you that credibility um, that, you know, sometimes students are skeptical of an advisor, and they say, well, why do we have to do it this way, or why are you teaching us captions? We don't want to do captions. Or, why are you making us have a yearbook index? We don't need an index. We know who everyone is, and no one cares. You know, like they'll find themselves and. And you want to say, well, you know, these are industry standard practices, and I have training in, in what this looks like, and here's how I know what I know. And it just gives that little bit of credibility if you're in uh, a developing program where maybe some of those things don't exist or where maybe you're trying to rebuild or enhance the caliber of journalism that is um, being taught at the school. Sarah, there are advisors listening to us right now. They're all nodding their heads. Yep, yep, yep. I know what she's talking about. Yep, yep, yep. Okay, let me move to sort of just an open-ended question, and that is essentially how important is scholastic journalism today? The journalism industry, you know it and I know it because we've been in this for decades, has been in a state of flux for a long time. Newspapers shutting down, all kinds of stresses and strains, the internet, and then of course maybe certain, we'll say, politicians saying various things and all that sort of thing. From your perspective as someone who works with young people, when we're talking about scholastic journalism, how important is that right now? Well, of course, I think scholastic journalism is essential, and I've felt that way for you know 20 years, but we're finally in a place where others are paying attention to realize just what a critical role journalism plays in a democracy and just how fundamental it is the, this idea of holding truth to account, right? Like to hold those in power accountable for their actions and to make sure that people are aware of what's happening in the world around them and just who's affected and how. That is critically important. Um, and it's so helpful now for students to have a way to learn that in school and to have a way to practice it themselves because of the way we're just inundated with media, right? So the media literacy skills are really valuable because anyone can be a content creator, right? Anyone with an iPhone can do absolutely everything that a journalist does. And the scary part is, um, just because you're producing media doesn't mean you're a journalist, you know? The, the training that goes along with understanding not only the value of like truth and accuracy, but the ethical training and the integrity involved in why you're doing what you're doing and where are you sharing it and why are you sharing it there and what, what do you want to happen as a result of sharing it. Um, those things are all wrapped up in what journalism is all about. And it might look different. I mean, it continues to change. You know, we used to read it in a newspaper. It was black on white, and that's all it was. 
And now, um, for a number of reasons, the industry has changed and will continue to change. Things are easier to share, um, easier to produce, faster to produce, um, being seen by more people. Um, but because of the ways that that can all be damaged or done disreputably or like incorrectly, um, unethically, it is critical that students learn how to gather information, how to verify, how to fact check, how to find balanced sources, how to understand what credibility is, how to effectively craft a message that's going to go out to an audience, right? Like how to know um, the most clear and fair and succinct way to disseminate information, but at the same time, the most powerful way to tell a story. And that might be through video, that might be through audio, that might be a photo slideshow, that might be something you watch only on your phone. But all of those decisions that go into that um, from the, the very first idea, you know, conceptual brainstorming to what's the best platform and how do I share this and how do I measure the engagement or the clicks or the traffic or the, the reach, um, every single thing along the way, those critical thinking skills are going to benefit everyone, not just the product that was produced to inform or educate or entertain, you know, like the value of the journalism in you know, civic engagement, right? Like paying attention so I know what to think, so I know what to learn more about, so I can inform my opinion, so I can go vote. That's like the ultimate. But every little step along the way is giving students a skill that they're going to use somewhere else. I think people are finally realizing just how big that is and how valuable. So I, I think it's absolutely the most important class students can take, and it's the gateway toward every other field, every other activity, every other meaningful thing we do, right? Like journalism makes the world smaller. Um, it helps us connect. It helps build empathy. It helps us understand places we're never going to visit and learn about problems that we weren't exposed to. And those things are things that more people are starting to pay attention to right now. Thank goodness. We'll return to our final segment with JEA President Sarah Nichols coming up in just a moment. Now, earlier we mentioned different ways that yearbook advisors can get themselves some graduate credit hours to benefit themselves. And this year we have a brand new second way for advisors to do this. Now, unfortunately of sorts, this is a Jostens exclusive. So this is only for Jostens yearbook advisors. But thanks to our friends at the University of San Diego, we have put together a terrific plan where you can do some work at home, essentially, online, and then through your yearbook effort next year to earn yourself some graduate credit hours. So in other words, you don't have to hop on a plane or jump on a train or anything like that. You can essentially do this from your home base. It's easy to do, and in some cases, depending on your effort, you may already be doing this stuff. So why not earn some graduate credit hours along the way, right? What happens is you sign up, you're going to take some online courses this summer, and then from that, you'll get some markers to use with your effort next year. And the simple thought is, take what you learn in the summer, use it with your yearbook effort uh, next school year, 2019-2020, and if you hit the markers, you get the credit. Simple as that. Thanks to our friends at the University of San Diego for doing this with us. Now, for Justin's advisors, if you'd like to get more information on your Yearbook Avenue website, go up to Plan, and then go down to Order Supplies, and then look for the link called Grad Credit. All the information is there, costs, the whole nine yards, everything is there. 
the summer session online uh, runs from June 1 into August. So if you're going to do this, I'd say don't dawdle. You know, check it out. If you're interested, sign up, get the information, uh, pay the appropriate bills and so on, and then check it out. Here's a great way to earn graduate credit, hopefully doing what you're already doing, except hopefully we're going to help you do it even better. All right. So once again, Yearbook Avenue, go to plan, then order supplies, then grad credit. All the information is there. A Jostens exclusive. If you somehow don't work with Jostens, this might be something you want to think about. Your company's not doing this. So contact your Jostens representative if you'd like to get more information. Right now, let's return to our last segment with JEA President Sarah Nichols, and we're going to start this segment with a rather stunning statistic. So here it comes. Now, let me see if I have this accurately. I think I do. Recently, there was a Press Freedom Day, sort of a, a celebration or a commemoration or something. Somebody did a survey. I don't know if it was the United Nations or it was some organization that claim that when it comes to press freedom, there are roughly 200 countries on Earth right now. The United States finished 48th on this list. And I read that and I thought, you've got to be kidding. America is 48th on the press freedom list. Now you're nodding, so apparently I have this accurate. How does this happen? How, how did we get to this point? Do you know? Uh, that is a complicated question, uh, and one that can really alienate listeners quickly, depending on, um, you know, perspective and political affiliation and all kinds of other factors. But yes, we, um, press freedom has been under attack for a long time. Um, we did have World Press Freedom Day just last week in May, had Student Press Freedom Day in January, and unfortunately, um, journalists are killed every day for doing their jobs all around the world, right? Journalists are imprisoned, journalists are killed, journalists are um, under attack in other ways, you know, retaliated against or fired or um, penalized. And um, I'm, of course, more specifically focused on students who face those challenges at the scholastic level, right? Administrative censorship or um, the teacher is removed or the paper is censored or the yearbook is taken back or... Um, the class is cut. We magically don't have funding anymore because, oh, you did a story about XYZ. But yes, our press freedoms are under attack and it's more noticeable. It, it, it has, you know, mounted over time, but it is much more noticeable when the president of the United States refers to the media as the enemy, um, uses terminology like, you know, fake news or blasts reporters for asking questions. Then obviously there's a much bigger spotlight on things like that and it starts to spread. And um, since people don't necessarily um, follow all the parts or know all of the information, they hear certain things that become the soundbite then that the media is the enemy or um, that certain things shouldn't be shared or that reporters shouldn't have access. And um, that's a scary place to be. Absolutely. All right. Now let's localize this to a school. Every now and then there's a story out there about an administrator or a school board that wants to somehow clamp down on a story or something in the yearbook or something like that that a student produces. And there's usually a big controversy and makes the news and blah, blah, blah. If you had a chance to sit down with an administrator like that who feels the need to, you know, control everything and so on, 
what would you tell them? I think the most important thing in those situations is to have the relationship at the forefront with an administrator where you're an administrator because you care about kids. And whatever path you started on in education, it was you wanted to help impact student learners, right? Same thing for me. I'm a teacher at the core. I've been a teacher my whole career. I'm a teacher because I want to help kids. I want to be. I want to play a central role in giving them the tools that they need as a learner to succeed. So if the administrator wants to do that and the teacher wants to do that, absolutely the best thing for the learner is to get to make decisions, right? To be 100% engaged in the learning process and to have that flexibility, freedom, autonomy, um, like the responsibility of figuring out what to write about, how to do the reporting, how to find the sources, how to verify, you know, is this real, is this accurate, is this authentic, like what other sources do I need, what am I missing from this story, fact-checking it, deciding which parts maybe even not to include because there is this whole other ethical side of what, what bad things could happen if we publish this story and who could be hurt or what would be the aftermath or the effects and going through, you know, just because I can doesn't mean I should. Going through that whole series of decisions, how to get it right, how to edit and edit and edit to make sure that the story is absolutely the best reflection of that student's work, and then to go ahead and publish and have people read it, because it's nothing until people read the story. I think the learning process, you know, what administrator doesn't want their kid to have that experience, right? Like, if you read every single school mission statement, every district in, in the country, it's like, Preparing students for tomorrow, right? Preparing them to go off into the world and be like these highly productive, contributing citizens in a diverse global society or something like that. That's every school's mission. How could we possibly be preparing kids for tomorrow's world if we don't let them make decisions? If we don't let them figure things out? If we don't let them struggle? If we don't let them realize their actions have consequences, right? And I'm not saying, oh, do a terrible story so you can feel consequences, you know. What I mean is figure out how to do the story right for the right reasons, with the right approach, with a trained advisor journalistically teaching and coaching and guiding, not controlling or censoring or dictating, but you know, the, the trained, certified, like highly experienced advisor going through it you know, on the sideline every step of the way, but the student is the one playing the game, right? Like they're on the field participating while we're on the sideline coaching. What administrator wouldn't want that? How could an administrator argue against that? Like that's what's best for kids. That's why we're in this business, right? I, I mean, it's not even a business to most of us. This, this is why we do what we do, is to help kids. And so if you sit down and have that conversation, it's fascinating. Like, there's, there's just nothing an administrator can say. Like, the kids have to be at the heart. Like, that's why we do what we do. Now, I'm going to assume, Sarah, that we have some folks listening advisors that maybe they're rookies or they're at a school where journalism, frankly, uh, is either kind of weak maybe non-existent, and they'd like to change that. Can you give some advice, both from your experience and maybe from your JEA experience? How do you start what could become a great journalism effort? What are the initial steps that they need to take? Well, anyone can do it, right? It does not matter how big or small your school is. It does not matter how much money you have or don't have. You know, it's very much about an advisor having a genuine interest in sparking that interest in students and building that culture, right? So you don't have to know anything, you don't have to have anything, but I think it starts with a core group of students, right? So you, you, you light the fire underneath a few kids by showing them what's possible. And the best way to do that is expose them to excellent journalism, right? Show them some good yearbooks, show them an amazing online news site, or send them some papers from 
great programs around the country and say, look what these students are doing. Like, do you want to do that? Like, look how cool this is. Look, look how you can create change on your campus or you can tell these stories or you can celebrate these students through, like, look at these powerful photos. So lighting that fire under kids, that's absolutely the first step. Um, the next step, of course, is setting some goals and starting small. Because I think what happens in some cases is an inexperienced or new advisor or an advisor walking into like a fledgling program, they get into some spaces where everyone looks legendary. And Facebook is a great example. There's some really nice groups on social media right now for journalism teachers or yearbook advisors or there's four or five different ones that are very similar. When you go in there and you post a question, there's some very um, beginning level or just like simple questions and then these like high and holy responders just like shut down the dialogue by seeming like they know everything and like how do you not know this it, it can be super intimidating right so we all need to work together to understand that whatever level wherever you are as an advisor just pick a couple things that you're going to learn about and implement next year you're not going to become like the know-it-all, do-it-all, amazing program in one year. It's going to take a couple years, just like with anything. So set some small, you know, attainable goals and, and knock those out. You know, hit the home run and then a couple more goals and then a couple more goals. Because once you just do a few and you succeed in those, the rest become the students' goals, right? If you get that core group of kids and you see some excellent journalism from other schools and you together, like, say, next year, let's just try this and this, and then you do that, then the kids are like, okay, now we're going to do this, and then we're going to do this, and then we're going to do this, and they will have goals forever as the program builds. So um, the next step for the advisor, of course, is getting training. So get some advisor-specific training. Um, JEA has a summer program that's advisor only. It's called JEA Advisors Institute. It's in July. Students don't get to come. It's specifically an advisor conference. So go learn as much as you can, right? Um, each of the yearbook companies has those. So for example, I love going to JAU, Jocelyn's Advisor University, because it's just the advisors and they're just hungry for, for getting better. And you'll see someone who's been advising for 10 minutes and someone who's been advising for 10 years sitting side by side and they're both just as energized by what they're learning because they're focused on their own programs and how to get one step better and then one step better. And so I think that that's a really good strategy. You know, like don't compare yourself to anyone else, just um, set some goals, expose yourself with great stuff, get a few kids on board, and then just let it build. That's great advice. That's fantastic. One more question. Now, this is the yearbooking report, our feature here. So let's circle back to yearbook. For all those yearbook advisors and maybe students who are watching or listening here, you're a terrific yearbook advisor. Just some basic, from your experience, some basic words of advice. How do you do a better job with your book? Why is this important? Some, some basic, uh, to wrap up here, some food for thought when it comes to your book. <laughs> That's such a big question. Uh, you want like the tweet version and I can like write a book on that question. You do, what, alone, but, you do whatever uh, you like, all right? You know, um, a yearbook it is full of heart, right? And so... The more you can make it about the heart and the connections between people, it's, it's full of memories of the year. And it's, of course, other things too, right? It's scores and statistics and facts and figures. It's this history book or time capsule. But at the core, your yearbook has to have a heart. And when you, when you approach it that way from every angle, if it's about the heart of the year, 
you can't go wrong. I mean, when you're out there as a photographer and you're looking through the viewfinder following the game and you see the story because you're feeling like these empathetic, like your heartstrings are being tugged by the emotion of the game or the celebratory hug or the tears or like these people uniting, whatever the story is, stories are about people, right? So when, when your heart is involved, you capture these storytelling photos that bring the book to life, right? When you approach an interview as more of a listener than anything else, you're finding the heart in the story and then your quotes are so much more meaningful in your stories. And when you're working with your staff, like you're having a staff meeting or you're problem solving with like a student on deadline or you're trying to, to get someone kind of motivated, when you approach the team from, from your heart and you realize you're all working together for this common good and it's about the people and the relationships and like how can you make that a positive experience, everything we do in yearbook is about the heart. And when you, when you form it that way and you kind of let that lead, um, your students have such a powerful experience doing that together and the work really shows because then the book itself has heart and your student body kind of embraces that because ultimately it's this very personal thing that you're doing together and for each other. Um, and I think that's really a key to success. I mean, you can slap any theme on the cover. You could have gold foil, emboss, whatever. But if there's no heart in the stories, um, that's going to show through. And then, like, who would want to be part of that anyway? It's too much work if there's not, like, the heart and soul um, in the experience. So that would probably be my, my takeaway. Sarah, that's perfect. Absolutely perfect. I really appreciate you taking some time to be with us today. I'm going to be there in November, I swear to goodness. Yeah, I'm going to be there coffee. somehow. You're going to have a cup of coffee or something. Well, I don't drink coffee, but that's okay. I'll have a tea or something. I don't know. <laughs> well, we'll have some water. Water is key for, you know, that's the other thing is advisor care. So advisors have to take care of themselves. Anyone in the scholastic journalism world knows that um, we work hard. So we'll we'll meet up and we'll, we'll take care of each other. It'll be good. All right, you got it. Sarah, thank you very much for your time today. Thank you. It was fun. I loved it. Once again, a big thank you to our friend Sarah Nichols from Rockland, California. Again, her yearbook is unbelievable. Wow, it is really great. But the interesting thing is it's not Sarah making all the decisions. She makes sure that the kids are not only learning, they're also the decision makers. Of course, teach them how to make good decisions. Her staff is just fabulous, and it would be interesting to have more staffs out there like that. Just, just awesome, awesome work. Sarah, thank you once again for taking some time. And again, if you want more information on JEA, go to their website, jea.org. Once again, for a teacher or an advisor, it's not expensive to become an annual member, and what you will get for that membership is really off the charts. We're talking curriculum, we're talking help, we're talking uh, maybe a pat on the back every now and then from fellow advisors, a chance to you know ask questions, get answers, get information. A JEA membership is absolutely worth the money. So be sure to check it out, jea.org. Folks, we appreciate you listening to the Yearbooking Report podcast this year. Now, like school, we're going to kind of go into a summer hiatus. All of our episodes, of course, are on Podbean under Yearbooking or on iTunes. Shame on me, I've got to check out Google Play. I've been lazy this year and haven't done that for those Google folks. Got to do that over the summer because we are planning another round of shows starting probably around mid-August. 
So we will hope to see or hear, or you'll hear us then. In the meantime, have a great summer break. And thanks again for listening to the Yearbooking Report podcast. Thank you.